I took it off me and I stuck it on a note because my husband was still asleep. And I said, my pumps failed. Medtronic's sending me another one overnight, but I'm taking some, a syringe with me and some insulin and my blood sugar checker in a, in a, in a bag and, you know, say a pray for me, prayer for me. <laughs> I'm like, off I go, right? Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network. This is episode 33 of Beyond the Page, the podcast that goes a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. And I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of the magazine, host of some of the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network, host of this one. And that's why you'll hear a little bit today from me, and thankfully a lot more from my two great guests. Up first is Linda Carrier. She is a crew member at the Country Club of North Carolina in Pinehurst. She works about three to five days a week. She's retired from her corporate career, and she is about as type A, overachieving, incredible magnetic personality as I think you'll come across. Linda is fantastic, and I hope to meet her in person sometime soon, but we talked over the phone, and, and even just through that, her her personality and her energy comes right through. She has run more than 60 marathons, more than 50 half marathons, some ultra marathons in there, and she's currently training to run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days for the third time. She was profiled by Lee Carr in our July issue, Fitspiration Package, and when I read that short piece, I knew I wanted to talk with Linda, was not disappointed at all. And I don't think if you need some inspiration in your life to get moving just a little bit more, to do things, I don't think you'll be disappointed either. Linda was fantastic. After Linda, you'll hear from Henry Delosier. He is our longtime game plan columnist. And as always, Henry, with an eye toward not just the business of golf and golf course maintenance, but the future of the business. His recent columns ask you to start thinking about 2023 and maybe preparing for what might become a recession. Fantastic perspective from Henry, fantastic perspective from Linda. Had a great time talking with both of them, and I think you'll have a great time listening to them. Before any of that, though, a quick word from CPRO. CPRO is the proud sponsor of Beyond the Page, and we thank them for, gosh, we're coming up on two full years, so thanks, CPRO. Turf plant growth regulators are a critical tool in keeping every course in top-notch condition. They not only help to reduce clippings on warm and cool season grasses throughout the season, but they also help manage and enhance POA annua to enhance the overall turf quality and conditions of the course. That's all important. You know that. I know that. And CPRO knows that, too, because CPRO provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass, and Legacy and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions. Their full line of products works hard to ensure that your course is consistently looking its best. Visit them at cpro.com to learn more. Linda Carrier, after the break.
Linda, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So in case folks have not read the July issue, either online at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine or in the physical issue, which is out now, Lee Carr, one of our great contributors, profiled you and two other turf pros in a cover package story called Fitspiration. There's Joe Walker, who's the superintendent uh, at Glen Echo in St. Louis. There is uh, Patrick Husby, who's the superintendent at Due Process Stable in New Jersey. And there's you, and you're on the crew at the Country Club of North Carolina in lovely, lovely Pinehurst, one of the great cities for American golf. And before we get into just this incredible marathoning and distance running that you've done, I'm curious, in retirement, when most people maybe sit on their back porch, enjoy a lemonade, read a book, you've joined a maintenance crew and you're out on the course at least a handful of days every week doing, doing hard physical labor. How'd you do that? I am. Um, so I, I rate golf courses uh, for Golf Week magazine. So I, uh, my husband and I both travel around the country and the world actually um, playing golf at all these different courses. And so um, just through that, I was, um, I, I would see a lot of the maintenance crew because I, I like, we like to golf early. So half the time you're seeing, you know, them mowing the greens and they're mowing the fairways and, you know, rolling and, and I'm like, and I was just, I was just more fascinated by it. And then, you know, the more I played golf, you know, I started, I just started asking myself questions like, you know, you get this golf course that says, oh, we're a, we're a link style course. And this is, it's great. So I'm like, I'm all excited, you know, kind of like, oh, this is going to be like being in Scotland, but then they have a type of grass, right? The Kentucky bluegrass or whatever that you can't really bump and run, you know? And I'm like, why would they, why would they have chosen that grass? Right. It was like, what, that doesn't seem right. But you know, what is, you know, I start asking myself questions, right? Is it because of the, the skill? Is it the, the, the weather there? Is it the, you know, just the, the design of it? Is it, you know, what, what is it, right? What, why do we choose, you know, Bermuda versus Zoysia or whatever, right? You know, and then I just look at the bunkers and, and that's one of the, my favorites actually on a golf course. I love looking at the bunkers and, and how they're designed. And, but I, I just thought, you know, how, what better way to learn, right? Than to, to work at a golf course. So it just happened to, um, I was, I thought I could volunteer actually, but I happened to see a, an advertisement in the, the pilot newspaper here, uh, but CCNC was looking for people. And so I, I applied and the superintendent called me and actually thought that I sh- was applying to be a cart girl. Um, <laughs> he goes, Do you, yeah. And I'm like, uh, no, he goes, did you mean to, to apply for the maintenance crew or did, or you want to be a cart girl? I'm like, oh no, the maintenance crew. He's like, oh great, come on in. And so, uh, so now I work there. I work um, somewhere between three and five days a week, um, anywhere between three and five hours a day. And you know, I've I've mowed some of the the greens and I've rolled them, and that's that's my favorite right now is rolling them. Um, and then doing the the sand sweeper and the bunkers, and mostly do uh, moving tees and trash and you know that kind of stuff, but picking pine cones. Um, but it's fun. It's a blast. I love it. Labor is such a challenge for every superintendent, for every agronomy director in this industry. I remember right at the at the second peak of COVID in late 2020, we asked in our state of the industry survey, what is your number one challenge for the next year? And 
COVID-19 preparations, restrictions was number two. And labor, even then, was number one. Yeah, so you still see it. Mm-hmm. If, if, I'm sure there are many superintendents out there listening who are thinking, why can't I just have just somebody from the from from around the city who could just call up and say, I'd like to work for you a little bit here and there. Right, right. I know, because it's I find it just fun. And I'm always asking, like, you know, can I teach me something new? I want to try that. Let me do, you know, and because there's got to be people out there that that want to do it. I, I love being outdoors. I love the physical aspect of it. Um, you know, it's just, I, I just find it fascinating. You said rolling right now at the moment is your favorite thing. What have been some of the other highlights over the last few years of course maintenance for you? I like, uh, I, I've done a couple, um, you know, kind of the setup for um, tournaments and stuff, you know, to me, I think that's, you know, you get the USGA or whoever it is that's coming in and wanting you to, you know, like they're um, doing the stint meter and stuff, you know, so I got to follow the guy around and was kind of watching that to me was just like fascinating as well, you know, placing, uh, you know, just where they, where they're going to place the pin and why, and, you know, and just how fast you need to have um, the greens going. And, you know, that, that was really fun, but I do also like to do the sand pro little, that thing moves. I love the way that turns and moves and, you know, around in the bunker and you can just kind of do it however you need to. Right. But to get the, the sand sweeper in there and, uh, and it looks pretty and, you know, but um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I think all of them, I'm, I'm waiting to, um, I want to really get on the, the blower. So that big old tractor blower. So <laughs> I keep looking at that. I'm like, oh, I want to do that next. I haven't done it yet because, you know, the person, it doesn't want to show me just yet, but, um, but I'll, I'll get around to it. I think it's just cause it'll probably be a little slow, but. Now, is that the, is that your superintendent there? Or is that somebody else on the crew who doesn't want to show you, maybe doesn't want to give that, that duty up just yet? Um, I think it's just somebody on the crew that just doesn't, okay. you know, I think there's some people are like, this is my job, you know? And I'm like, Hey, teach me. I don't want to give it up. I love this. <laughs> you know, and I, I get that, you know, but it's like, I'm not going to take your job. I just want to I just want to get on it. I want to see how you do it. I want to know, you know, a lot of it is like, even like mowing the, the fairways or, or when they're, you know, spraying. And if I'm the one that's setting the T markers, sometimes they run over my T markers. Right. And so they squish them into that. And I'm like, really? And so, but to me, if I could, if I could do that, if I could spray or if I could mow the fairways or, you know, I would know, like, maybe I, I need to place them slightly different, right? Maybe, maybe a half a foot in further, you know, um, what is it that makes them, you know, that they can't see it, you know, because if I'm not, if I've never done it, I have no idea, right? So if I'm just randomly, well, you know, placing things around and, and they're thinking, what the heck, why isn't this girl doing, you know, I wouldn't, I don't know. And so, you know, a lot of times I just want to learn, right? What's the, what's the best way to do that? So you as a, you know, you're cutting the rough, you know, and you have to get up close to the tee boxes, right? What's, you know, what, what, am I doing something right that you can't see that? Or is it, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just making it up, but I have, sometimes they run them over and I'm like, oh, you know, it's like, don't stop running them over. But yeah, it's fun. Just based on, we've been talking recorded and not for about 20, 25 minutes based on that. One other interview that I read with you and what Lee wrote about you, you just seem like an incredibly curious person in all aspects of life, whether it's working on the crew in retirement, your your career, which you you stepped back from a, a handful of years ago, course rating, 
which I don't even think we've mentioned on this episode, you've rated 130, 140, almost 150 courses for golf week. The number we hadn't mentioned, I don't think. Uh, and, and your distance running, which we'll get into here in a few minutes, just, is this been something lifelong? You've always been curious, no matter what it is. It is. It, it, absolutely. I think I drove my parents nuts as a child, right? I just never, you know, it's just, to me, it's just, you know, I, I'm constantly learning. I always want to, I want to understand why, right? If something comes up and it's, you know, I just want to understand why, why, why did that happen? Why did that person do that? What's the, you know, if, like my mom used to tell me, you can die in a, a teaspoon of water. I'm like, how, why, right? And so I'm like trying to figure out how's that, how's that work, right? I mean, you know, it's just, I've always been that way. And so, um, I don't know, it's just, it's, I'm still doing it. So you said you work three to five days a week, three to five hours a shift at CCNC Country Club of North Carolina in mm-hmm. Pinehurst. This leaves you quite a bit of time to train for your outside interest, which I don't know if this is essentially your full-time job now in terms of just hours, but marathon and other distance training. You have run how many full and how many half marathons now? So full marathons, I have done 60, 68 oh. half marathons. I think I'm at 50, 52 maybe. Um, I've done two 50 milers and I've done one 50 K. Yeah. So, and then, and I've, I've got a marathon coming up this weekend. Right. The, uh, up in, up in Wisconsin, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. just Wisconsin in the summer. Not we, we emailed about this. There are not many yes. summer marathons. That's true. At the end of July. It's very hot. And especially hot. this year, yep. it's not everywhere. Yep. I know it's going to be warm now too. So it's, I think the high is like 82 or something, So, but it's on trails. So hopefully it'll be all shaded on trails, wooded, shaded. Hopefully yep. you started about six in the morning. I know seven, but yeah, I know. Well, we can't bump it up an hour. No, I know. Wouldn't it not be lovely? I'd even do it at four. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, when, when you're on the crew and you're starting at probably right. four thirty five o'clock, it's nothing. Head, yeah, you put a headlamp on, you, yeah. off you go. Yep. How did, how did you get into distance running? What, what was the timeline and, and what was the original impetus for that? So I come from a large family. I am the second oldest out of seven children, um, Catholic family, and um, I have a lot of energy. And so my older sister was a book reader, then there was me, and then my other sister, the one that's a year younger, she um, was all into art, right? So she was always, you could see her sitting there drawing. My two brothers were always into sports. And my two younger sisters were, you know, kind of into kind of girly stuff, right? And dressing up and hair and that kind of thing. And then there was me. And so I'm like, you know, curious, popping around. Why is this? What's doing? And it would drive my mother crazy. My dad's at work. My mom's taking care of us. And so I would, I would just drive her nuts. And so, you know, if I didn't have anything to do, I'd get into trouble or I would stand in front of the TV and just jump. And, and so she would send me out to run around the block and she would say, she would tell me, she goes, Linda, you're driving me nuts. Go run around the block until I tell you to stop. (laughs) Okay. And so I would run around the block, run around, run around. And then, you know, the neighbor kids during the summer, they were like, Oh, here comes Linda. And so they would do things like 
put out lawn chairs. They would time me, see if you can do it faster the next lap, right? And so they would time me or, you know, and sometimes my mom would join me, but, you know, and, and you know, it didn't matter what the temperature was, what, what if it was raining, she, if I was driving her nuts, she would get me running around the block. And so, um, so eventually I, I just, I loved it, right? I just started seeing the benefit of it kept me calm, right? It just, I didn't feel like I was like wound up tighter than an eight day clock, right? I'm <laughs> like, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I can actually focus now, you know? And so, so it worked for me. And so it helped me in school and it helped me just with everyday life. And I just started seeing that, right? As I, as I started getting older. And so, um, you know, when I was, I never did it in, in really in junior high or high school or even college, I just did it more for fun. And so I would just go out and you know, I'd get one of my sisters maybe to join me and, you know, or I get friends at work and we'd just go out and run. And then in 96, I think it was, um, some friends from work were like, you know, we should try this half marathon thing. We're like, I'm like, okay. And so we went up to Vancouver, BC and we're like, okay, hopefully it doesn't kill us. And so, cause we, <laughs> we had no idea. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so we ran it and, uh, and I got done and my husband was there and I got done and, uh, and he's like, he looked at me and he goes, you don't even look like you're tired. Could, could you have done that again? I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, and I'm like, I'll meet you at the hotel. I'm just going to run back to the hotel. He's yeah. like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know? And then I thought, well, well I'm going to try a marathon. So once I did that, um, you know, I was kind of, I was kind of hooked and I, I just liked the. I like the time, you know, I just like being out there. I like being outside. I like the, you know, like what better way to see a city than to run through the the streets, right? And see the, some of the culture, like when you run New York, right? You run through all the boroughs, right? And so it's just a beautiful, um, you know, and it changes through each one of those boroughs. And it's just, you know, to me, it's just fascinating. And, you know, you can, you can just feel and see the culture. And so I, I, I enjoy that. And, you know, so I, I don't know. So I just keep doing it. So 1996, you're up running in uh, Vancouver, like you said, Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Great year for distance running in America. Um, I don't know if you remember this just offhand, but it was the centennial of the Boston Marathon, which is the oldest marathon in the right. country. Mm-hmm. And that was the year that they opened the race to, I think, everybody. I don't think yeah. you had to qualify for that year. And I think there was something like 40,000 people running from yep. Hopkinton to downtown Boston. Yep. Was this on your radar at the time? It was. I actually, my husband actually had seen that because it was like a lottery. You had, you mm. like submitted. And so he's like, you should do that. And I, I believe I did. I didn't get selected obviously, but, um, but I hadn't trained for a marathon. I was just looking at doing the half. And so I was like, oh, wow. How cool is that? And so I, I went ahead and did that. And then and then I just started, Boston had always been one, because I, I remember as a kid, well, probably 20s, maybe early 20s, late teens, um, watching a, um, it was the Olympics with my dad and watching um, one of the runners come in that a uh, woman runner, and she was just, I mean, it was so, she was so, so dehydrated and she was staggering onto the under the track and was just, you know, and we were just like, oh my gosh. And I knew, you know, no, nobody can actually touch her because if they helped her, then she gets disqualified. And so she's struggling around that, that track, trying to get across the finish line. And, uh, and I just remember looking at my dad and, and, uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to do that. 
I, I want to run a marathon. And, uh, and I said, I'm going to run Boston. And he's like, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, I knew I liked running, but I think he was just like, mm, yeah, I don't think normal people do that. But um, no, I've never done anything with the Olympics, but, um, but, you know, I had had it on my, my, um, my list to actually do. And so, so I've run Boston three times. Um, yeah. So it took me a while to qualify because I'm not the fastest, but um but, uh, but I've run it three times. Now my husband would have me run it every, every year. Cause he, Boston's one of his favorite cities and it's got a lot of sports that weekend. Mm -hmm. And so he loves it. he's all like, why don't you qualify for Boston again? I'm like, oh my God, I'm trying to run a marathon in all 50 States. I can't keep always doing, <laughs> you know, Boston, but yeah. So, um, but I love it. Yeah. There's a couple, I still have, um, still want to do, um, the Rome marathon. So that's going to be on my, that's on my list too. Yeah, I was I was going to make a joke about your husband saying run Boston so I can go to the Red Sox game, which starts yes. at 11 and I'll meet you at Fenway. Yes. Or you See? can meet me at Fenway. He'll have he would do work. that. He would do that. Absolutely. Because we always go to the game before, you know, he would do that. I know because you'd run by all the people, you know, and by the time the marathon's going through, right, people are already coming down, you know, from the from the game and you get you get told to score as you're running right by all the, you know, the people are watching the marathon. Who's winning? And, and Red Sox are one of his favorites. So, yeah. Had you succeeded in the 1996 lottery, you would have been that rare runner whose first marathon was Boston. Evan, what, mm -hmm. what was your first marathon? Mine was actually um, Honolulu. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that was because um, I got two friends to do it with me and they had never run a marathon either. And so it was three of us that were going to do this. And we, we decided, we said, let's pick a marathon that's going to be at a, like a fantastic place. And um, that if we, you know, like, really hated it and were pain and whatever, we're still in a beautiful place. And so we picked Honolulu and the, so, but one of the girls, she played soccer and she ended up getting injured, but she still came and supported us. And then the two of us ran it and, and it was, it was beautiful. It's just a, it was a great first marathon, but having not ever run a marathon, I wasn't expecting that many people at the start. And it was kind of a narrow, the way that they have you on it's and it's dark when it starts and so you and you you know you're kind of running and it's a little you know it was a little overwhelming that you're so close to everybody and they're stepping on your heels of your shoes and you're you know and I was just like oh you know because I'm I'm training I'm by myself right I'm like Ooh, on tracks right but you know and you're surrounded by 40,000 people it was like good lord right and so that was a little that was a uh, something I wasn't expecting but um but it but it was a great it was a great race and now more than 60 fulls in, more than 50 halves in. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago, you're trying to get to a marathon in all 50 states. You've already done all seven continents. We'll get to that as well. Now it's now it's old hat, but at the time, what what is this? You know, your first marathon, oh, you're just not used to it. Right, right, yeah. I know, it's like, you, you know, I don't know. You know, you, you have these impressions about uh, all races, right? And just... You know, and I, I do a lot of reading with, you know, um, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and I did some reading of these books about what you can expect, you know, and it always talks about, oh, you can get blisters on your feet, make sure your, you know, your shoes are a certain way and make sure you've got, you know, clothes that you wear ahead, don't try any new food, whatever, they didn't talk about 40,000 people, you know, I was like, I'm like, that would have been helpful. Right. I mean, you just, you know, they don't set those kinds of expectations, but it's more about, you know, surviving the, 
the pain. But, you know, to me, the, the other thing about marathoning is it's really a mental game. You can train your body for anything, right? It, but your head, you know, if your head's not in the game, it, it can talk you out of it. It doesn't matter what is going on, right? But it'll, it'll, they'll start talking to you like, oh, I think your knee hurts. You should probably, you know, you might, maybe it's broken. Maybe you need to walk, right? And, you know, you, and to me, I just, you know, I, I, I do tricks and, you know, I find ways to ignore it and keep on going and enjoy the, you know, the people and the, the race itself and, you know, the environment and yeah, it's great. I love it. A lot of mental games to tying this back to golf course maintenance. You're on the course at 435, 530 in the morning. There's nobody around. You've got your headlamp on. You're, you're doing your first job going into your second. Maybe you're a little tired. Maybe you want to get to the second job. Has there ever been a moment where your head is like, ah, you don't need to do that. You can cut that corner. Nobody will notice much like when you're running a marathon or. If it did cross my mind, I wouldn't do it. Um, Yeah. So um, I've, I've have, I will say, and we all do it. Right. So you think, Oh, I could probably just skip over that one because hardly anybody plays those red tees. Right. But I, I, I just can't do it. And it's, I don't know if it's the OCD in me or what, I don't know, but I still have to, I still have to, to do it. Right. So, um, but for me, most times when I start having anything in my head, that's, you know, like starting to want to talk me out of things, I just play little games. Like even like, you know, I'm doing golf course maintenance and I'm out there by myself or whatever today, for example, I was doing, we had a storm last night. So I was doing some cleanup, picking up fallen branches and pine cones and all kinds of stuff that was out there. And so that can be very boring, but I play games, you know? So I, I'm like, Oh, I wonder how far I can throw this pine cone into that that cart. Right. So I'll step it off, toss it. Right. Oh, dang it. Right. But I just play little games as I'm going. Right. And just, and and just make it fun. Right. But um, you know, cause there are boring things in life, but it doesn't have to be right. You can add any, anything to make it, make it enjoyable. And so if, when, so if I'm running a marathon and I get to that point where I, I might hit the wall, you know, it could be at 21 miles and I'm thinking, Oh good God, I got five more miles. And, you know, oh, you know, it's hot. I'm, I'm sweating, you know, um, then I start doing math problems. And so I'll do like, I'll do square roots. Right. I'm like, and I start trying to figure out the square root of whatever. Right. Or I'll do multiplications or I'll do whatever. I'll just start doing, you know, I'll look at a, a mileage and I'll think, I want to have that how many is that in kilometers? Right. And so I just do, I'll do that in my head as, as I'm going until I get past that, you know, that point. And then it's like, then I start listening to the music again and then I'm back in my happy place and off I go. Right. So I think we all do something that, um, you know, when you get into those, those, those places, right. And get you through it. It sounds like you took to long distance running fairly easily after that, yeah. the first half marathon and the first marathon in Honolulu. At what point, Linda, did you say, well, I bet I could do this in all 50 states, or I bet I could do this on all seven continents? It was probably, I started doing, um, so I started doing like about one, one a year. And then I thought, well, that's, that seems like too little, right? Because I, I don't know. <laughs> so then I thought, well, I could do a couple, couple of years. So, you know, cause I was working 60, 70 hours um, a week and, you know, and traveling. So 
Um, so I had to squeeze in the, the running in between. So sometimes I'd be running at two o'clock in the morning, right? If I had to travel in the morning. So I'd get up in the morning and I'd be, you know, either on the treadmill or out on my, out on the streets at 2.30, you know, my husband's like, just don't get hit by a drunk driver, <laughs> you know, like try not to, but, um, but I was dedicated to it. So I would just get it at squeezing in wherever I needed to. Um, but, um, you know, to me, it just, uh, I, I just, I don't know, I, I, it comes easily. And then it, and then I would say probably when I was probably had done about 20 something of them, you know, marathons, I started looking at things like, um, the, uh, goofy challenge, right. Because I wanted something that could, yeah. you know, challenge me a little bit better because then marathons were like, ah, oh, it's just another race. Right. And so, um, so I did the, uh, the Walt Disney goofy challenge, which I think was the, like a 10 K one day, a half marathon, the next, and then a marathon, the, the full marathon the next day. Right. So it was like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I think they've actually now added an even more extreme version. I can't remember what it's called, but I think it's a five, five K, 10 K half and full That's right. the rest of days, which is just, or maybe it's a mile, but it's, it's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. And well, I thought I was like, Oh, I wonder if I could do that. Right. And so, so I challenged that, you know, I challenged myself with that. And then, um, and so I kept looking for things. I thought, well, that was kind of fun. All right. What's the next challenge. And so, um, you know, you get, you, you know, social media is out, right. So you're following things on Twitter and, and Facebook and, and those types of, you know, social media, um, and different runners. And so I, you start, that's when you start seeing like other things. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. And then I started seeing more about ultras and that's where the 50 K and the 50 miler and the hundred milers and the, you know, and the, even the, just the kind of death Valley ones and you know these just crazy ones. And I kept thinking, huh, I could do that. Right. I wonder, I wonder what that's. And so when I was turning 50, um, my sisters and brothers were all like, what do you want to do for your 50th? Right. And, I, and I'm like, they're like, let's go to Vegas. Let's, let's parachute. Let's, you know, and I'm like, let's run a 50 mile race. And they're like, mm, no, you know, and uh, I'm like, come on. Right. So, but I did. So I did the Mount Sai uh, 50 miler, um, the month of my 50th, 50th birthday, but I'm a, I'm also a type one diabetic. And so um, when I did that race, uh, the 50 miler, my, my insulin pump had failed that morning. And, um, and the race, I mean, I had to be there at like five o'clock in the morning or whatever. So I got up and I'm, you know, I'm getting ready and I've been training for the last three months and I'm, I do something with my pump and I realized like it, it had just failed. It was, it was dead. And I thought, Oh, good Lord. Right. And so I'm like, what? so I called Medtronic. I'm like, Oh, my pump. Okay. I've got this and this is what's going on. And they're like, yeah, it's dead. Um, we'll, we'll overnight you one. Well, I'm like, but I've got a 50 mile race in like an hour, right? And they're like, they're like, uh, I, you probably shouldn't do that. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm doing it. I, I trained, right? So I took it off of me and I stuck it on a note because my husband was still asleep. And I said, my pumps failed. Medtronic sending me another one overnight. Um, but I'm taking some, a syringe with me and some insulin and my, and my blood sugar checker in a, in a, in a bag. Oh and you know, say a prayer for me, prayer for me. <laughs> I'm like, off I go. Right. Well, he was just livid, of course. But, um, so I, you know, and I had been off a pump for, for years. Right. So trying to remember what it was like to, um, you know, to, to not be on a, on a pump and what you need to do. And so, um, it was just crazy. So, 
um, I, I started the race and, and I had a drop bag, which I've never used before. And I said, what do I do with this drop bag? They said, just drop it over there. We'll, we'll have it on the van and we'll catch up with you. Okay. And so off I go. Well, I knew I'm like, well, I haven't, I can't eat anything. Cause I don't have my insulin with me. So, um, so I'm going along and pretty soon I'm like, I don't know, 25 miles or whatever, and 30 miles. And I really need to eat something. <laughs> and so, we get up to where the, the, the um, drop bag should be. Everybody else's drop bags were there, but mine wasn't. And mine, and mine was this tiny little black bag. And, uh, and so I'm like, oh, I'm like, where's my bag? And so I said something to the people. I said, I don't see my drop bag here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and run up because there was a, might've been the 25 mile. I don't remember, but you had to run up like five miles, came back five miles. I think it was a 30. So that would have been the 40 miles. So Mark, so I said, I'm going to go up and run and then I'll come back. And I need, you guys need to find my drop bag. Right. So I came back and they're like, we don't, we don't know where it's at. And they figured out eventually that they had left. They didn't see it. It had slid in the back of the van and because it was black, they didn't see it, but they were able to get it, but they didn't get it to me until about mile 45 or 46. So I hadn't eaten anything. I hadn't drank anything. I was sicker than a freaking dog, as you can imagine. Didn't have my insulin with me. <laughs> I had nothing. My sugar checker, nothing with me. And uh, so they finally caught up with me and I probably had about five miles left. And by this time I'd been, I'd been just throwing up and I was just sick on a dog. And, um, but I finished. So I was happy to finish and I was alive. And then, um, and then I had the next day I got my pump and everything was fine. <laughs> but I was just like, oh my God, what am I doing? Right. It was just, my husband was like, you almost died. I was like, oh. Okay, that was a little dramatic, but you know, but yeah, probably not the smartest thing to do, but um, but it was a challenge, and so um, you know, uh, to get to to do another fifty miler was a was a big undertaking. Uh, you know, so I made sure my pump was working and everything was good, but um, but yeah, it was fun. It's uh, I but I just like those challenges, and that's how I found out about the World Marathon Challenge and those types of things is because it was on social media. Right, because you finish a 50 miler, which is almost twice the distance of a marathon with no insulin, with right. no food, no drink, maybe, maybe water. I don't even know. Right. Why. Water. Mm -hmm. um, but that kept coming up. Yes. What, what could possibly be more difficult than this? Well, why don't we try to run seven marathons on seven continents in seven consecutive days? And right. spoiler alert, you're training to do this for a third time yes. in October. So you've done, you've done it twice. How, how in the world, because I've, I've had a couple friends who've done this and it's, it never sounds anything but bonkers to me. It's just so <laughs> ambitious. I, I like it. I think um, to me, um, I, I just, I like the challenge. Um, I like any kind of, any kind of challenge, right? And so the first time I did it, I was doing it just to make sure that, uh, just to see what my body would do, right? As I as a type one diabetic, you know, what, what, what happens? And, uh, and I knew I had, you know, you always plan for the worst, but you prepare. Right. So, um, so I, I had everything I, you know, I had a, had an extra insulin pump just in case it failed. Um, especially with the, cause I didn't know with the pump and even Medtronic would tell you, you know, it's not supposed to be used in these extreme temperatures, like in Antarctica, you know, where it's, below zero. And then you're within six hours later, you're in, um, 
South Africa where it's a hundred degrees, right? And that and that's they're like, you know, we don't know what the pump's going to do in those extreme temperatures. Um, so they gave me a loaner pump just in case something were to happen. Um, and then, uh, but you know, I wanted to just see what my what my body would do and how my you know how how strong I I am mentally, right? And and you know, you do see people that want to stop because it's it's you know it's painful. It's you know it's fun, but it's painful. You know, it can be, you know, you get, some people have big blisters on their things. And I mean, people have run with a stress fracture and, you know, there's just, you know, like this one girl in 2019 fell at the, um, crossing the, uh, finish line and tore like some ligaments away from her hip and all the way down to her knee. And it was bruised and just, it was horrible. And she ended up having to walk. She walked the half marathons for the rest of the other six walked the half marathon with that injury. That was the first one she did that on. Uh-huh. First Very day. first one. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Yeah. She cried the, like the next marathon. She was just bawling because she knew she's like, I can't, you know, I got injured on the very first one. Yeah. Yeah. But I know, but we're all, we're a little crazy as my husband always says, but <laughs> you know, we're all determined, right? We're going to, I am going to, I will crawl across that finish line if I have to. So, you know, it's, I don't know. It's a, it's a challenge. And so I liked it the first time I, I really, really enjoyed it. And, but it felt like it went so fast. And so Medtronic um, agreed to sponsor me and let me do um, some educational things for like newly diagnosed diabetics, um, adults who are diabetics and, you know, kids that are trying to get into uh, sports and how, how do I deal with, you know, blood sugars, keeping it level while I'm doing these extreme events. Right. So, um, so they wanted me to, to do some posts and, and things like that to help, to help those, you know, these kids. And, and I was like, all right. And they're like, well, well, you know, pay for that. If you go do it again, I'm like, sweet baby Jesus. All right. You know? <laughs> so, so here I am. So I did it a second time. And then, um, and then this, and then they didn't have it obviously in, in 2021 because of the, uh, you know, pandemic, but, um, and then in, so now they're having it in 2022. Normally you have, it happens in end of January, beginning of February. Um, but because of the stuff that was still kind of going on with the pandemic and, you know, Australia hadn't opened yet and, you know, that kind of thing. So he pushed it back to October. That's why we're doing it at the end of October. So it'll be different. You know, you always have different, you know, different seasons. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it, how it is different. But this time I actually get to um, have my husband come along. So they've got a slightly bigger plane. And so they said, yeah, there's, there's a couple of us that can bring, you know, if you want to, you know, bring a, bring a friend or a spouse. Now you have to pay for it still, but um, you know, so, so Eric's like, I want to see what that's like. And so he's not going to run it. He's, he's just going to be there to, to help. But um, yeah, so it's going to be fun. Well, if you're up for it at some point in November, when you've recovered and you're back and you're unpacked and you're, you feel good, we'd love to have at least you back on and, and, and Eric as well, if he wants to contribute the, the supportive spouse perspective, there you go. get you back on the podcast in November to to recap how that went. Absolutely. We love that. Is there anything else that I did not ask about that we did not talk about, whether it's lessons you've learned on the crew, lessons you've learned in distance running, things you're looking forward to, or, or just anything you want to talk about, Linda? Not really. I think um, most people have a fear that, um, 
you know, they, they're just, I don't know, I don't know how you want to say it, but it's, there's a fear that will stop most people from doing things. And I think you, you learn so much when you face that fear, right? So if I know in, in 2020, when we were doing the um, Antarctica race, the weather was horrible. It was really, really bad. And we had already been delayed over two days. Um, they, they had gale force winds. I mean, the temperatures were like 40 below, you know, like, like 50 mile an hour gale, you know, winds. And they, they shortened the, you know, we're supposed to have done like a, you do 26 miles, but, um, but the, it was supposed to be like a five mile track or whatever, but they shortened it down to like a mile and a half so that we weren't in the, you know, so we ran it like 18 times, <laughs> whatever it was, right. Um, I can't remember what the distance was, but it seemed like we were running around in a circle forever, but, um, but they were trying to protect us from the, the head on for so long because it was just so, it was a little dangerous. Um, but there were so many, you know, people that were like, why would you have done that? You know, that's just, you know, you could have died. It was like, what, what, you know, and I said, well, that, fear, you know, is where I think if you can, you can kind of address that fear and get over, I mean, cause some of, some of them were crying, you know, why are we doing this? Are we going to die? <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's like, no, it'll be fine. Right. Just, just, just try it. Right. And so I think we're all, um, I think everybody grew, right. Cause that's, that's really where you grow. You, you learn more about yourself and what you, you know, what you can actually, do right and uh, and how strong you are and when you're when you're faced with things like that that you're that could just you know frighten the crap out of you right but you do it same thing with jumping out of airplanes right I've done that I've done bungee jumping it's like you know, you want to address that fear and see you know and 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 grow from it and so I think you know if you if you're ever faced with anything that's that's really frightening you know I, I just think you need to to take it head on right but prepare for it right have at least you know, when I did the 50 miler, right. At least I, you know, I took my insulin with me. Right. But <laughs> I probably didn't plan as well, but, um, but knowing when I did the, the world marathon challenge, you know, the first time and, and after that, right. I, I planned if, if something was going to happen, I, at least I, you know, I, I could, I could deal with it, but um, I think you have to, I think you have to face your fears and, and grow. It's nothing better. And while I do have one friend who ran a marathon when he was a I think he was 22 on zero training for, oh. for people listening who've, and it was painful. He still, yes. <laughs> he did it for a newspaper story. Uh, if folks are listening, you've never run a half, you've never run a full. Uh, I've not run as many as Linda, but you know, two to three months to get you up to speed for a half and, and a full, I mean, you'd say probably four to five months. I think, I think the basic uh, training block is usually about 18 weeks. I think Yeah, mm-hmm. folks yep. give yourself time. Don't, uh, Right. You know, don't, don't just jump into right loop in Antarctica in 40 temperatures. <laughs> yeah. That's a little advanced. Yes, that is. That is. Yeah. No, I think if you, you know, if you do the training and you can find training on any, in any books or online or whatever, right. Just stick to the training. Um, don't, don't take any shortcuts. Um, take, you know, stick to the training, get that done. And then it's just a mind game after that. Right. So find, find ways. And a lot of times what I do, especially for the world marathon challenge, it's, it's loops on every continent, right? So you could do, you could be doing 12 loops. You could be doing five loops. It just depends on the, the mileage and, uh, and going five, 10, 12 loops on something can be quite boring and you have to prepare for that. And so I'll run on the treadmill, 
I'll run four hours on a treadmill because if there's anything going to be boring, it's going to be running four hours on a treadmill. Right. So, so, you know, you just figure out, you know, and that's where I, you know, I do math problems. I do, you know, I'll come up with little stories. I've been thinking about, you know, you know, maybe if I wrote a book, why would I write a book about the marathons? Right. And so, you know, maybe murder mystery with marathons. Right. So, you know, I come up with just different things in your head, but just to get you through some of those, those boring parts. And cause it is just a, it's a mind game after your body's trained. Good luck this weekend in Wisconsin, just Thank a little you. trail marathon in your training. Good luck yep. uh, in October you. seven, your third go round at yep. seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. We'll have you back on after that to recap and, uh, and good luck just on the crew at, at, Thank at you. North Carolina, always fun. And, and we got to come down and see in Pinehurst sometime. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. It's fun working on the crew. I love it. Linda Carrier, if you're not inspired now, I don't know what what it'll take. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. My next guest on this episode of Beyond the Page, you know his name, you know his byline, you probably know his face. His mugshot is at the bottom of, of every column, and that is Henry Delosier. He writes our game plan column every month, partner at GGA Partners, and it's been too long since you've been on, Henry. It's, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Matt. It's certainly great to be a, a participant. You always have these timely, I would say almost prescient columns most months, and we normally only tackle one month at a time, but I feel like your July and your August columns are almost two peas in a pod here. In July, you wrote Start Thinking 2023, and in August, you wrote Recession Preparation. So plan ahead, and then plan ahead a little bit more. I don't know if there's going to be a third in in September for planning, but these two really seem to go together. Well, thank you for that. Um, I I have um, economic issues on my mind, and I think most golf course superintendents do. They're faced with such heavy burdens as far as how do I manage my costs, how do I maintain high standards, um, and, and that makes it a challenge. Um, the big number, of course, on everyone's budget is labor. Um, increasing in, uh, you know, so far it's up 3.4% according to U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and that's about half of the current inflation rate. So at some point there has to be a truing up. There's no reason to expect that labor costs are going to start to flatten out. And I'd say most superintendents are in a war for talent, either recruiting it or retaining it or both. So as you think about that, um, you you find yourself really wrestling with the idea that this economy is going to keep chugging along. Uh, most of us do not have control over the economy. We can only control what we do to either prepare for those circumstances or to defend against them. And, and I've called out in, in as you mentioned, in uh, the July piece, um, labor as the number one issue. What we're seeing is labor being a pressure point for uh, recruitment. That means, can you tell your story? Can you show a prospective employee 
that they're joining a team. They're not just taking a job. You're looking for them to be committed to you uh, for the long run. That means that they need to see themselves in your picture. They need to understand where they're going to make a contribution and how that is valued. They need to see that you respect them as a coworker. And they need to understand, of course, that the other workers on your team are going to welcome them as a teammate. I also called out uh, matters with regard to the basics of being a golf course superintendent, how you're scheduling your pesticide applications, what you're doing with those things, um, how you're handling your irrigation plan, because that is changing. And I believe we're going to see more and more pressure on uh, golf course superintendents, golf course Golf courses themselves, with regard to their consumption of water, become more and more mindful of a widespread drought across the U.S. So those are factors that you want to be ahead of, not behind. Playing catch-up on some of these issues is just too tough. And so for me, I come back around to the big number on your budget is labor. And as, as you look at that, you, you see golf course superintendents breaking out, really, uh, if, if you have on a continuum that's on one side says, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I, you know, I'm just trapped in this situation. And you have at the other end of the continuum, people saying, I'm going to start doing my homework, introducing enough facts and research that I can change this situation. And, and that's the way most of these discussions are separating out. Um, the folks who are superintendents who say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. They, they, accounting department or the manager or the owner gives me the numbers and I'm just stuck with them. And I have to figure out a way to make it work. I want to encourage um, uh, superintendents to give themselves more credit than that. Um, they're, they're responsible for the most valuable asset on the balance sheet of every one of their facilities. That golf course is the backbone of most clubs and, and golf facilities. And so um, a golf course superintendent's got to stand up for that golf course, got to fight for that budget, got to get that additional labor cost in place so you can do the job you want. Uh, how, you'd say? First of all, I'd say call on your academic training and do the research on labor and compensation trends. It's all out there. There's plenty of information. I go usually to the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, because those are highly reliable data points. They're easy for you to represent to the people up the food chain from you that, that have to be educated as it relates to the, these labor costs escalating and how you're having to compete with other facilities. The other thing I encourage uh, superintendents to do is build your network. Find out what other superintendents in your area and other superintendents at facilities like yours are doing so that when someone says, oh, that's ridiculous, nobody does that, you want to be in a position to say, well, actually, they do. I've spoken to one through seven here of different comparable facilities, and here's what they're doing. Those are the people who are bidding for the same workers that we're bidding. And then the other factor, in addition to base wages, think about benefits. What, do you, what is it that's in, in the works for most of your staff, most of your team? Uh, the most valuable asset that you can provide them is group medical coverage. And, and the more of their family you can cover, uh, you know, aiming for 100% coverage is the best thing you can do. In many cases, health care benefits are even more valuable than a pay raise. So that becomes an important factor. And then one other factor that I tried to call out, in, I believe it was in the uh, 
August piece was that be sure that you understand your staff well enough to know what benefits they value, what things matter to them, so that as best you can, you can use those benefits to incent them to stay with you and, 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 and keep their shoulder to the wheel. As you think about that, for those of you who will take the challenge and, uh, that I'm tossing out there and say, go, go fight for your budget, go do your homework, and, and really represent that you are the professional in charge of this part of the facility, um, build a new compensation structure that benefits all of the employees at the facilities beyond the golf course maintenance uh, team. And I think that's an important characteristic for people to, to bear in mind as they walk away from this and say, what can I do? That would be my overall take on where we are right now. A lot to unpack there. Let's, let's rewind uh, a couple of minutes. You had mentioned, Henry, that labor has really only gone up in terms of cost. I think you said 3.4%, and that's not even half of what general inflation has been over the last 12 months. Do you anticipate that the labor costs are going to fully catch up to inflation? And and if so, should superintendents plan to uh, bump up just sheer wages or salaries? Or as you mentioned with benefits, can can some of that be rolled into medical benefits or or other variable benefits? It it very well may be. Um, uh, For first order of businesses, I don't think the the shortfall is going to... um, persist. You know, at some point, inflation will start to taper off. Mm-hmm. And, and when it does, then compensation benefits will will catch up. And at the same time, that, I, that will be a slow curve. So it's really important that everyone keep in mind that you've got to keep pushing your your labor costs upward and accounting for that. You know, most, most golf course superintendents know that they're that their labor costs represent 52, 56% of their overall budget historically, that number is now up closer to 60%. And I don't think it's going to come down. And the reason that I think that is because this great resignation seems to be persisting. A lot of people are just deciding they've had enough. They don't need to work anymore. They don't want to work anymore. And I think that's going to put pressure on until we find uh, new segments of our society that would like to brace some of these jobs that we have available on golf courses. Well, and and amid everything else that that you pointed out, I was going to say, for all the folks who are walking away from whatever job they're walking away from, there, there is a lot to be said for, granted it is a physically and sometimes sometimes mentally, but mostly physically demanding taxing job, golf course maintenance, but you are outside, you do have a certain level of freedom. Uh, I think there could be a lot of selling points for superintendents to try to bring in people if they could only find them and, and get them to the golf course. Sure. And my advice to superintendents is try every online resource of which you are knowledgeable. Indeed, Monster, LinkedIn, every one of them. Put yourself out there and and toss out the ones that don't yield anything from you and keep working the ones that that, uh, do yield leads for you. Recognize you're not going to get every single person who clicks on a, on a, a, a posting, but over time, let the numbers work to your advantage. And as I've, I think, shared in, in previous columns, one of the sources that we have seen of 
potential labor for um, uh, um, golf courses is uh, folks who are mustering out of military service. Mm-hmm. There are a lot, a lot of folks that just would like to be out in a green, peaceful place, have their task, work independently, do the job that their uh, superintendent or uh, you know manager is telling them to do. And uh, that might be a good resource for a lot of people. The other place that we have seen more um, workers coming on to golf course maintenance staff is people who are semi-retired, have reached a certain age, they're living on a pension, they've got Social Security or whatever it is they may be using as a baseline salary, and they just like having a reason to get up and go off somewhere, spend a few hours at work, you know, running uh, a piece of equipment, tending to certain basic chores, being a part of the setup crew, whatever you might find for them, uh, don't don't rule out options because sometimes uh, people who are retired or semi-retired can make a real contribution if you don't overtax their their physical capabilities. You mentioned a lot of those online hiring sites. Uh, Indeed is very polarizing among superintendents and other turf pros. I've talked with some love it, some never want to use it again. But in all the folks that you've talked with, Henry, and and you cut an even wider swath, I think, than we do, is there a target percentage? Is it, you know, you you try to hit X number of hits or or a certain percentage in terms of posting and and you get this number of responses? Or is it just kind of uh, like throwing darts in the dark? I'm not sophisticated enough to answer that question really knowledgeably, Matt. Um, But I can tell you that in in the absence of having enough sophistication and knowledge of online recruitment, uh, that's where I come back around to try all of them, throw out the ones that don't work for you, and use the ones that do. And, you know, to the very point that you made, if you found that one in particular doesn't work for you, then don't waste your time on it. Move on. There are plenty of other options. And the real key is let the let the law of big numbers work in your favor as opposed to against you. And before we get back on track here, I am, I am curious. Golf course industry is on TikTok. We've posted, I think, four videos, and we're not obviously trying to hire people through it, but I've talked with a few people who have had some success on TikTok. Are you, I can't imagine you're on TikTok, Henry. I'm not a TikTok person, <laughs> and uh, more than anything else, I don't have anything against it or, or, or otherwise. Just got busy to the point that I haven't really gotten myself involved in that in that technology, but I, there's no denying that it's it's something that a lot of people seem to find interesting. Getting back a little closer to the subject matter of your columns, especially July, in terms of um, compensation and benefits, we talked a little bit about how compensation might catch up to inflation, although you said inflation probably going to start slowing down a little bit. Uh, I think we all hope that. In terms of benefits, you write that medical is very important, and then there's the variable benefits, whether that's cookouts or free beer or uh, uniform allowances. What are what are some of the, the creative variable benefits that you've come across in your conversations and research? The, the most meaningful are the ones that give a sense of belonging, give, give staff the feeling that they're part of something bigger. If that's uh, if that's the superintendent and the assistant superintendent uh, barbecuing steaks for some for some of the crew on a Friday afternoon, if that's um, bringing 
lunch in from somewhere else and feeding everyone um, it, and giving people a chance to sit around together and talk, tell stories, talk sports. Um, that's a real important characteristic. The other thing that I see in the way of variable benefits that's the all-time leader in yielding great results is let members of the crew bring their family to a picnic, to some type of a get-together, and and in, encourage your staff to show their children, show their families, here's where I work. This is my uh, equipment that I operate. This is the job that I do. Let the kiddos have a chance to sit up in the seat where their parent sits. Um, those, are, those are things that touch people's hearts and help the families be proud of, this is my mother or father. They do this job. I'm proud of them. And I got to go and see where they work. That really matters to people. So there's, there's no substitute for pride in one's work. And that, that matters. It seems silly. It seems silly, simple. And it seems obvious. And yet we so seldom do it. Uh, so that's where there's opportunity. That's the low-hanging fruit, in my opinion. All that covered in your July column, Start Thinking 2023. That's available online right now, golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. I know the physical copies are starting to get out there because we finally got them in our office. It's usually about the middle of the month. Now, your August column, not available in print yet or online. It will be within, by the time this podcast drops, within about the next uh, week to week and a half. But that's recession preparation. And we haven't heard that word too, too much in recent years, but it has, it has really popped up in 2022 um, and I feel like it's going to be a big, big part of the conversation the rest of this year and, and probably a good chunk of next year, if not beyond. And, and I hate to be a, a pessimist there, but um, economically, and, and that's a big part of your background and, and a big part of your your, your knowledge base here, Henry, um, is, is this something that superintendents and turf pros should really maybe not worry about, but really, really uh, maybe build in some extra line items maybe mentally prepare and, and be ready to maybe do more with a little bit of less because of a recession in 2023? Um, first of all, you know, one of the things I've always admired about the golf course superintendents with whom I work is that they're professional enough that they don't worry about stuff they can't control. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't, they don't lay awake at night worrying about, oh, it's going to be a hot, humid uh, weekend. Uh, you know, what am I going to do about turf loss or, you know, algicide applications and so forth. Um, they just take, they deal with what's in front of them. They, they have the spirit and the backbone to step up to whatever the challenge is. And if the, if the challenge is going to be a recession of some port, of some portion of that, they'll step up to that. Um, there are steps that can be taken care of in, in that in that process that I'm trying to address in the August column. And the, the easiest way I know to say it is get, start doing your downfield blocking. Start planning ahead. Start thinking about what am I going to have to do between now and 2023. I've got a budget to submit. I've got to persuade people to support my budget assumptions. I don't want to relax the, the quality of the work that we're doing. I don't want to change our agronomic plan. It's working, and it's proven through the years that I, I know what I'm doing. So start working with your with your accounting manager, with your general manager, with any of the people who are in the decision tree that relate to your 2023 budget. 
start discussing with them emerging trends, start talking to them about what categories in your budget, uh, I'm sorry, what expense categories in your budget are increasing and how you intend to deal with that. Uh, Give them enough data, show them enough proof that they can't say that you're being a a worry wart or that you're just being a, a negative person. Just let the data speak for itself. And, you know, I think golf course superintendents are uniquely prepared professionally to be able to do that. You, you have the training that you've been trained as scientists to bring forward facts and then try to sort through those facts and, and find solutions. I think that's a real key thing. In many cases, the golf course superintendent is the best educated person at their facility, and you need to use that education. You need to use that intellectual discipline to help you make some important decisions and to influence the decision-making at your facility. This is no time to be passive. This is the time to be assertive. As I say, to get downfield, start clearing the way so that you can be successful when you have the opportunity to submit your budget. As I indicated a moment ago, there's just no doubt that your labor costs are going to be up and up significantly. Uh, there's no doubt you're going to be dealing with in, enormous volatility in anything related to the oil and gas sector. And one other category where there is no doubt that we're seeing significant increases is increases in insurance-related um, uh, factors. So those are just three right off the bat easy to prove, easy to research, and you can bring bring those in and let everyone know. I, this is not a matter of me doing a bad job. This is not a matter of me giving you my Christmas wish list. This is simply a matter of me doing my job, and I think that will go a long way in helping your 2023 budget to be better supported. There is one other factor that I wanted to call out because we're seeing so much um, activity right now on golf course renovations, redos, people wanting to take on new special projects. And one of the bits of advice that I'll toss out for everyone is seek out some third-party help. And I'm not, I'm not talking about go hire a consultant. No, I'm not talking about go hire somebody to do your job for you. Quite to the contrary, uh, on some of these renovations and project, special projects, Call on some people who've built hundreds of golf courses. You know, there are a number there are a number of people who have been golf course builders for decades, have built hundreds of golf courses, and a little renovation or a little redo project might be kind of interesting to them, but it doesn't represent for them uh, some, you know, boulder on their back that they have to carry around because they can come in, help you do the things you need to do, provide you that extra set of eyes to say, hey, heads up, you need to be on your toes about this or that, or you need to be careful with this circumstance or that circumstance, and they'll be worth their weight in gold to you and make it easier for you to conduct and and supervise ongoing special projects or renovation work uh, without it um, taking your attention away from the other responsibilities that a golf course superintendent has. Fantastic advice. And it makes perfect sense, just whether it's in that or, or really any other area, find someone who's done something a lot more times uh, certainly than you have, but a lot more times than most people have, and rely on their experience, whether it's whether it's renovations or or any other area for that matter. Absolutely. There was a there was a pretty well known uh, turf pro who who retired a 
from turf maintenance a few years ago who always said that he tried to be one dollar under his annual budget never over never a lot under he'd be within a dollar that was his goal and it was i think he hit it a lot uh obviously that's a little more challenging these days than it would have been in the 90s or or even the early part of the 2000s and maybe some of the 2010s what what advice would you give to superintendents who are preparing their budget who are trying to take into account 40-year record inflation who have a lot of variables with a potential recession and they're they're bumping things up you know seven eight nine percent they're trying to stay in line with inflation and they present it to uh, the board, or they present it to members, uh, or the city if they're if they're public, city, county, and they get back. Well, you don't need that much. Maybe you could make do with a two percent increase, or maybe you could even be flat this year to next year. Uh, what what are what what's some of your advice to those who are maybe having a little hard luck uh, trying to get the increase for next year? Sure. I've I certainly sat in on meetings like that, and I encourage golf course superintendents to be brave, to know that you're the expert in the room, and don't be defensive, don't become hostile, uh, it's, it's, which is easy to say when it's not your budget that's being attacked. <laughs> but it, when, you, when you get frustrated and you start becoming argumentative, you just make the other guy's case for, for them. So in other words, uh, recognize that your teammates – are the most valuable resources you can influence in the care of the golf course. You have to have a strong team behind you. You have to have enough people on your team to get the work done. And then the next factor that I'd call out is be sure that you keep reminding everyone that this golf course for which I'm responsible is the most valuable asset on the balance sheet. It is the backbone of our operation, and we need the people. We need to invest in the people that will get this job done. So now, it's, as I said, now is the time to be bold. Don't don't back off. Don't concede on on these points that become big points. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, right now, compensation growth is not keeping up with recession. So conceding on any of those points just puts you further behind the eight ball. Yeah, there's there's no way when you when you are mis uh, mispricing something, there's no way to make up for it on volume. And so I encourage everyone, hang tough. Be sure that you make the case for why these are valuable investments. And sometimes you'll find that one of the most powerful arguments you can make when people want to rationalize why you just don't need as much as you're saying you need, uh, help everybody to understand here are the impacts of if we don't do this, these are the outcomes that we should likely expect. We should expect degradation in golf course conditioning. We should expect increased dissatisfaction among our golfers. Help everyone to understand these are the ripple effects. So if we're going to not invest in our golf course, if that's the decision, we're deciding that we're going to diminish the value of our asset in favor of 2 or 3% that we should have spent anyhow. So, uh, again, I say be brave, hang tough, and, and make your case in a very logical, rational manner because it will carry the day. Henry, before I let you go, anything else you want to bring up, anything we didn't talk about, anything that superintendents should know for the rest of 2022 and, and into 2023? I think I've touched on it in a couple ways, Matt, and I appreciate getting a chance to participate in this discussion. And my message is 
we're in a period of time where it's a real roller coaster ride. A lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty, and I encourage uh, golf course superintendents stay steady, stick to your job, tend to your responsibilities, and and be that steady influence because your steadiness helps everyone else who's not so certain, who's a little bit less confident. It's your steadiness that they start to lean on and rely upon, and that will get you the things that you aspire to for your for your work. So I wish you well on that, and I'm sure proud to be able to support in every way that I can. Henry DeLozier is partner at GGA Partners, industry leader, and for golf course industry, writes the game plan column every month. You can find Start Thinking 2023 online now, golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. That's his July column. His August column, Recession Preparation, will be online within about the next week to week and a half. Check them both out and his full back catalog. Dozens and dozens of fantastic columns. Henry, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Thanks again to Henry DeLozier and Linda Carrier for taking some time to go beyond the page. Thanks to our sponsor, CPRO, which provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass and Legacy and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions, whose full lineup of products works hard to ensure that your course is consistently looking its best and who is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, online at CPRO, S-E-P-R-O dot com. And, of course, it should go without saying, but I say it every episode, thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. You get new episodes of Off the Course, Greens with Envy, Tartan Talks, and Beyond the Page just about every Tuesday. Real Turf Text with Trent Manning drops on the third Wednesday of each month, and Wonderful Women of Golf with Rick Wolfel drops on the first Thursday of each month. Our July issue is online now at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. And our August issue will be online eh, pretty soon. So many great stories in there, so many great columns in there, all designed to help you out on the course and behind your desk. Even more stories and news available in our fast and firm email newsletter that's delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. If you don't get that, you can sign up directly on our homepage at www.golfcourseindustry.com. Credits time. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful. Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, you just heard from him for about a half an hour, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton. We have so many fantastic regular contributors to Trent Bouts, Tyler Bloom, Lee Carr, and thanks to Lee for writing the Fitzpiration and Summer Strong stories in the July issue and for finding Linda Carrier. Oh my gosh, thank you. Ron Furlong, Trent Manning, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our summer editorial assistant is Cassidy Gladio. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Russ Warner is our national sales manager. Jim Blaney designs the magazine, and he does a great job every month. Caitlin Sellers and Amanda Cafardi make sure everything goes where it should. Christina Warner makes sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. I say it every month. That's important. Everything's important, but getting paid's important. Irene Sweeney does everything and more. Ryan Jacobs, Anna Matthews, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, Brock Andorada, and Patrick Briand. RRIT team. Our president is Chris Foster. Haven't seen him up on the roof lately with his bees. I wonder what's going on. I'm sure he's still up there. 
Above all else, we could not do what we do without all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening.